You know, but all these things, all these jokes and things that we hear in all these comments, they have one thing in common. If only there was some way we could alter time, either move ahead or move backwards or reset or something, we're all in that place. But have you ever thought that maybe, perhaps, God is trying to get our attention, that he's trying to tell us something, that he's trying to get us and say, you know what, there's some things that you've walked away from. I'm trying to shake up the things that that you've leaned on, the things that you have turned to, the way that you have walked through your life. And and sometimes, we know that sometimes he allows things to come in. And I'm not saying that's all this is, but sometimes he does allow things to come in for the purpose of shaking us up and getting us to shift our attentions back to where they need to be and so perhaps God is trying to say you know what yes you need to alter time but what you really need is alter time so it's a because they alter man I grew up I grew up seeing all kinds of incredible and crazy, and even some out-of-control things that were a little bit in the flesh, but things that happened in the altar area. I remember having services where there was a long time that the service went on and on and on because people were in the altars. And, but, but, but somehow along the way, due to our fast-paced lives and, and, and our, our desire and our used to, I mean, there's so many things today. We kind of have this mindset that when we want something or we need something, there's so much that's available to us that we get, we're able to get to it instantaneously. And so we kind of have gotten into this mode, I think, of thinking that everything that we need is just at our fingertips and it's easy and it's accessible and, and it can happen very quickly. And somewhere along the line, we've lost the art, I think, of getting on our face before God in the altar and pursuing Him. I think that somehow we've allowed ourselves to get to the place where the altars are, in a sense, a little bit more spiritually dusty than they should be. See, the truth is we need that place. We need a place where we can come, and we know that we're always welcome. I have never seen God tell somebody to stay away from the altar. We need a place where we know that we can go and we can be heard. Did you know that if you're a born-again believer in Christ, God does not turn his ears deftly towards his children? You may not get the answer exactly like you want it when you want it, but he hears our prayers, and he responds to our prayers. If you watched my devotion on Wednesday night, I made the statement that one of the things that God never says is, I'll be right back. He doesn't put us on hold. He's there and he listens for us. It's the place where we can find the audience with the king. But not just a king, the king, the king of the universe, the one that spoke it all into existence. It's a place where we can always find our answers. I have learned through the years that when I don't know what to do, the best thing I can do is get on my face before God and tell him I don't know what to do. That place is the altar. Romans 12.1 to me kind of gives the perfect picture of a New Testament altar. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, there is something about being a living sacrifice. We're going to explore the altar a little bit today, and I'm going to get into some of the Old Testament things of the altar. But isn't it great today that we don't have to come in to the doors with some kind of sacrifice, some kind of bloody sacrifice that we lay out before him, that we can come and we can lay ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice? In a sense, laying ourselves down, saying, Lord, I am yours. Lord, have your way with me. There is something about that complete surrender that opens the door to all kinds of miracles. See, but the truth is the the altar has been a prominent place all throughout Scripture. And did you know that the word that is used, the original word that used for altar is now it varies a little bit depending upon your translation as to whether or not it will say that, but that the original word for altar is mentioned somewhere around 400 times in the Old Testament alone. I don't know about you, but I think if a word is mentioned that often, that maybe there's a little something to it, and that maybe we're making a mistake if we begin to step away and begin to say that the altar isn't important. Think about this, all throughout Scripture, we see that, bef- that many times before some major event was to take place, an altar was built. Many times after some miracle that God performed, an altar was built. On some occasions, the altar was built before and after. Many times in Scripture, you'd see God would perform a miracle, and they would immediately, upon Him performing that miracle, they would build an altar, and they would make an offering to God, and then they would make the idea, and they would leave those stones stacked up with the whole idea that whenever generations later came by and walked upon that space, and they saw those stack of stones, that somebody was able to point to that next generation and say, this is where that miracle took place. It was an altar of remembrance. And the truth is, the, in the altar, did you know that when, when, when God was ordaining the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple later on in Jerusalem, that the establishment of the altar in Exodus 27, eight whole verses are dedicated to exactly how the altar was to be built. I'm thinking if God put that kind of detail into what he wanted, then he meant for that to be a place. The altar should have a prominent place, I believe, in the church today. Unfortunately, we have this tendency to to phase them out. And I'm not just talking about the piece of furniture. Some of you know that a, a chair can be an altar. The steps of a stage can be an altar. My goodness, your steering wheel can be an altar. But there's but 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 for some reason there seems to be this tendency to to phase them out. And sadly, too many times the furniture is still there, but the altar has still been phased out. If we were to truly change the times we live in, I believe we'd better get back to altar time. I've been walking through this series that we've been calling Matter of Time. 
We've been using Romans 13, 11 kind of as the theme verse for the whole thing. And just as a reminder, it says, bless. I mean, so besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You know, this, I had a plan for this series, and it's probably going to still happen. This week, I was sitting there, and my thought for this week is, was that I was going to begin to get in because I, I do believe that the season that we're in, to me, there's so many signs that are pointing. There's so many things that are in place now that I've not seen any other time that ought to get us all looking to heaven and saying, you know what, this could be it. This could be the time. Because there are so many things that, that is talked about in Scripture that we know will come to pass that, that seem so far-fetched and, and impossible that now we're looking at it. You're like, okay, this could be. This could happen. We're hearing a lot of talk today about cashless society. And we know that someday there will be a mark. Now, what exactly it looks like, I don't know. But I don't think as believers we have to worry about is this, that, or is that, that. I think when the time comes, we will know. I believe it'll be that obvious. But so this week, I was, my plan was I was going to begin to talk about how that we don't know the time, but we can't know the season. I was going to talk about the rapture because how many know that one of these days the trumpet is going to sound? And those of us that believe are going to be caught up and we're going to be out of here and we're going to be in the Lord's presence. And those that think that they have a certain way, they want to see this world go, we're going to be out of the way and they'll be able to do all those things they've said they want to do and they will find out pretty quickly that it was not what they thought. And so my plan was to get into all those things, and I'm probably still going to at some point. But this week as I was working, and I was beginning to, because normally I like to really get on things. And begin to, and so I was working, and, and I don't know, if, if you've never put something like that together, there are times that, that man, the, the Holy Spirit is just breathing on it. And I am, I, my fingers, I, of course, I'm not a super fast typer anyway, but I can't type fast enough. He keep up with what he's downloading. But then there's times I feel like I've got a direction and it is like this labor that I can't seem to press through and I can't seem to get where, where I, I feel like I'm supposed to go. And I've learned that if it's that hard to get there, that perhaps I'm chasing the wrong rabbit. And this week was that way. I mean, it was getting later and later in the week, and that wasn't coming together. And I was like, Lord, you know, it's been a long time since I've kind of gotten panicky. It's like, what do you want to say this week? But, you know, I'm kind of getting there. And this was Thursday evening. And I get a text. And not to put him on the spot, but James Krops. Kropke texted me and he said, what time is the church going to be open on, Thursday, on Sunday morning? I said, usually somebody's there about 8.30 or so. He said, I'm going to be there. He said, I feel like I need to pray because God has something he wants to do in the service. So Friday morning comes along and I get up and I thought, well, I better, guess I better get into this thing, get this thing fleshed out because if God's going to do something, I'm... I need, to, I need to have something to throw out there, right? <laughs> I 
And all of a sudden, I just ran across a couple little things that completely shifted my attention from the rapture to the altar. And all of a sudden, what wasn't flowing was flowing. So I texted James. I said, well, I just shifted things, you know. I believe you're right about something going on because I have shifted to the altar. And he said, well, that's exactly what the Lord told me to get there early and pray over was the altar. So I know, I believe, what exactly God's going to do today, I don't know, but I do know this. I do know without a doubt that what I'm about to share with you this morning is from the Lord, and I believe it's a wake-up call for, my, for us. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the role of the altar. First of all, the altar is supposed to be a place of sacrifice. There is something powerful about sacrifice. There is something powerful about surrender in the midst of our need. And it's so easy. Yeah, I can go into the offering side of things, and I do believe that how we respond in that area is a spiritual thing, and it really is a good barometer of where we're at spiritually. I believe that, but <clears throat> but in... in but as I begin to think about this and begin to think about the idea of, of the offering being a place of sacrifice, I thought about the widow and her two coins, and I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail on that. We kind of touched on that earlier. But my mind went to a place that I'd never really given this this much thought. But in Genesis chapter 8, we, we see a story now, probably every single one of us, if you spent any time at all <clears throat> in Sunday school or children's church or <clears throat> reading Bible stories or anything like that, you're pretty familiar with Noah and the ark, right? But one of the things that really struck me was when the whole thing is over with and the ark is settled on Mount Ararat and they, and they get out and they're beginning to look at the idea of reestablishing life we see a very, very interesting moment. Noah builds an altar and sacrifices to the Lord. I want you to think about that. Sometimes we don't think we can sacrifice because we look at what we have to work with and we think it's not enough. Guess what? The prospect of things to sacrifice in the world at that point were pretty slim. He took part of the limited availability of sacrifice that he had, and even in that moment, sacrificed to the Lord, believing that he would provide. There is something about when we don't look at how little we have, but we look at what we do have and we say, Lord, I give you a portion of what I do have. I surrender to you. You know, there was a shortage of animals, right? There was no guarantee of renewal, but he did it. And he gave up a portion of what he had in the midst of his need. But 
beyond just what we can give tangibly, there is something about in the midst of our need when we lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice. When we come and we humble ourselves before Him, because the altar is also supposed to be a place where something dies. That's really what I hit because if you think about the altar in the Old Testament was a brutal place. It was not pretty. I mean, it was a reminder of the brutal sense of what the justice for what we deserve in our sin deserved. It was a place where a very visible demonstration of how a very holy God that a blood sacrifice would be required to pay for our sin. So you can get the picture. I mean, the, I'm sure it was not a pretty place to look at at all. And as brutal as it seems, the Old Testament believers understood that blood had to be spilt. But they were looking for the day when the sacrifice would come that would end all sacrifices. And thank God Jesus was that sacrifice. Some of you were here, I think, years ago when we had... Uh, Right before Easter, we had, uh, actually it was Easter Sunday, we had, we had a Seder presentation and, and we had a, a, a person that came and, and laid out what the, the whole Passover was all about and all the details. It was amazing how much it pointed towards Jesus. And even though it is still celebrated to get today, that many don't even see how the whole thing points towards Jesus. And a comment was made. That after Christ's sacrifice, the sacrifices of the Lamb ceased. And she said, the lady that presented said, they can't even tell you why they stopped that, but it stopped about the time of Jesus' sacrifice. Because there was one sacrifice that was good enough for all. So isn't that what great? Isn't it wonderful that, that even though the altars are placed as something that's supposed to die, that we don't have messy, brutal altars. We have altars where you can come and you can lay yourself down and you can, and you can put yourself in position and you can receive from the Lord and the sacrifice has already been made. I love what Hebrews 13, 10 through 12 says. We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of the animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin. And the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. Because of that blood... Our altars aren't blood-stained. Our altars are blood-washed. And today, the altar should be a place where something dies. Today, the altar should still be a place where you go and you spend time there that a little bit of something of your old self is left at the altar. Something is sacrificed. Something has died. Something dies there. And that somehow you're willing to sacrifice things. And, and maybe you're willing to sacrifice some of the dreams that you've held on to and say, you know what, I'm going to let this dream die here. And Lord, I embrace your dreams for my life. 
You know what I've seen through the years? Most of our dreams that we hold on to selfishly, God has his version of that dream. You were given the talents you have for a reason. And sometimes we think we need to use them for personal gain. Sometimes he's like, if you could just see what I could do with that. It would be so much more satisfying than anything you could do. The whole goal, though, is when we come to the altar, a little bit more of us should die and a little bit more of him should become alive in us. So I really want you to question, I want you to ask yourself this, I want you to think about this. How much altar time do you spend? You know, for many of us, sadly, it's not enough. The busyness of our lives, the alarm clock goes off in the morning, we're up, we're rushing here and rushing there, and then by the time things still the night, we're like, I'm just too tired, I'm going to bed, and, and it, it starts all over again. We need to get back to the idea every church should have altars. We built a prayer chapel out there with the idea that there'd be an altar that'd be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We, we, but your home should have an altar. Now, I'm not saying you built this shrine or anything. You know, I can't tell you how many times my desk chair at the house has become an altar. I can't tell you how many times the hallway in my house has become an altar because I'm pacing back and forth calling on the name of the Lord. There needs to be that place that we go to. We need to have that place where there's a place of sacrifice where we can lay those things down. But there's something else the altar is. The altar is a, is a place where covenants are made. You know, covenant is a word we don't use much anymore. But a covenant is a binding pact. It's something that, that has been declared an agreement that there's no backing out of. Many in the Bible had moments around the altar where covenants were made between one another or covenants were made were between man and God. In Genesis 17, 3 through 5, we see one of these covenants that is one of the ones that much of what we believe in is based on. It says, Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I mean, that is one of the most famous covenants of all. Through that lineage, Jesus was born. So much of what we know. How many times do we see in Scripture where God would show up on the scene and He said, He would say, I am the, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that, that same covenant carried on through generations. We see that Abraham became, or Abram became Abraham. Deals were made that were made at the altar were binding. And the word covenant means so much more than pinky promise. Covenants were considered a blood covenant. A binding pact or contract that was not meant to be undone. You know, we still have those today. Many times, 
the altar is where people walk down an aisle and they stand there and they enter into the marriage covenant with one another at the altar. A covenant that is meant to be a binding covenant until death do you part. We dedicate babies at the altar. Because what are we saying? We're saying we're making a covenant promise that we will raise this child in the, in the presence and in the name of the Lord and that we will be what we need to be to, to make sure that that child has every possible opportunity to follow the Lord. You know, baby dedications are more for the parents and for the church than it is the baby. Yes, you're giving the baby. You're making a promise. But there is something. How many know that we have our part to do when that is made? Many into, the, into, into a covenant relationship that we call salvation at the altar. Many of us, when the time came that you truly gave your life to Christ, it happened at the altar. Water baptisms many times take place in the altar area. From the idea that we're letting the old person die and the new person is being raised up because of the covenant of that. We need to understand and hold on to what it means to be in covenant relationships. Because today we live in a time where nothing is binding. Everything has loopholes. Real quick and I'm going to move on. If you're familiar with the Midianite deception... In scripture, the Midianites were the ones that came to the children of Israel and and they put on this ruse and they said, oh, we're this people that's from far away and we want you to make this covenant with us and see our bread is still moldy, our bread is moldy from the journey and all this. And so they made this covenant with these people without truly inquiring of the Lord and it turned out it was a deception and they were a, a group that was close by and they wanted to make that covenant so that they would not be destroyed as, as the children of Israel were beginning to take the promised land. But the interesting thing is, we would have this mindset, oh, they deceived us, so this covenant is null and void. But that's not the way it worked. The covenant was still binding to the children of Israel, so they had to, make, they had to honor their agreement with them. See, a covenant promise is something completely different than what we would think today. And when we make promises to God, how many know we make a promise to God, you better keep it? I'm not going to get into the stories, but there's been a couple of times in my life I made a promise to God, and later on I was like, you know, God probably would have done that, that I asked for without the thing that I offered in return, so I really don't feel obligated to do it. And then later on he showed me, oh, yeah? You make a covenant with me, you better keep your word. You don't get to know the details. Let's just say I learned a lesson. But the altar is also a place of weeping and joy. You know, there is something about having that place where we can come and we can lay our burdens down. I heard a story years ago that I thought was one of the most wonderful stories. 
little girl was really troubled. There were things going on in her family, and she was very upset. And she really, she, she loved God. She'd been raised in a good home, and, and she really didn't know, but she didn't know how to lay out what was on her heart. And so she came to the altar of the church with, with a very heavy heart, and she was weeping, and, and she was beginning to pray, but she really didn't know how to form the word. She really didn't know what to ask for. Have you ever been in that situation that you know you need to pray, you know you need God, but you just don't really know what to say? You just you're so heavy of heart that you have to get it out, and so this girl, little girl was feeling like that, and all of a sudden she just began to pray from an earnest heart, A, B, C, D, E, F, an adult that was close by was like, "What in the world?" Don't walked over to her and said, "said Honey, I can see something's bothering you." Is there something? Oh, I just, I feel this burden, and I'm praying, and I'm just, I'm just calling out. My dad told me when you don't know what to say that you just begin to pray because God knows what you need before you even ask. And, and, and so, and, and finally the adult says, but it sounded to me like you were just saying your ABCs. The little girl said, well, I was just throwing all the letters up there so that God could take them and rearrange them how he needed to to say what needed to be said. Doesn't that grab the essence of the other? It's about the heart. Sometimes we got to think, we, we got to pray these eloquent prayers, and we have to, that if we can get our wording just right, that somehow we can twist God's arm into doing something. He's concerned about your heart, He's concerned about you pouring it out. We kind of see a different version of that same story in 1 Samuel 1, 10 and 11. <clears throat> We're all probably familiar with the story of Hannah. That's usually a story I use when I do a baby dedication. But we read this. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, if you're familiar with the story, Hannah loved her husband, her husband loved her, but I don't know why anybody ever thought this was a good idea, but her husband had another wife. And there was this rivalry and there was this bitterness because Panina could have children and she couldn't. And the other wife constantly let her know and picked on her about it relentlessly. So when you read the story, they were there for the time of sacrifice. And nothing could console Hannah. And Hannah went to the temple and got in the altar and began to weep and cry and pray. So much so that the high priest thought she was drunk. And approached her and she told her story and he said, let it be as you have prayed. She left. 
God heard her prayer. And she gave birth to Samuel. An incredible man of God that led the nation in a whole new direction. God answered that prayer as she weeped for a child. And she didn't care what others thought. She was determined, I'm going to get a hold of that altar until I get the answer that I need. I'm going to call out on his name. And she made a deal. You know what's incredible? She kept her deal. When the time came, she brought him back. Can you imagine what Eli, the high priest, much have thought when this lady shows up with a kid and says, I'm leaving him here with you because I made a deal? Now, his two sons were messed up. That's a story for another day. But Samuel became the man of God that led the nation and became the, the next high priest. And God used him. I mean, he anointed kings. God used him in incredible ways. All because a lady prayed and cried and weeped at the altar. But at the altar, that altar, the day came when that weeping became joy. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been for her to bring him and present the fulfillment of that prayer? You know, sometimes there's just something about a tear-stained altar some of the most incredible moments I've had in my life. <clears throat> Even though we don't like sorrow, we don't like heaviness, we don't like those times, but still some of the most memorable and powerful moments in my life that I've had is when I've been at an altar, whether it was something I made at the house or a couch or a piece of furniture in the church or on the steps of a stage or wherever, but there is just something about when you get there and you lay it all out and you get a hold of God and you pray to the point that all of a sudden you can see your own tears falling and making little spots on that deal. But there is something about it because when we pour out our heart like that and it's done in a pure fashion and we open ourselves up and we quit being so busy that we can't stop and lay it on the altar before him that all of a sudden God hears that and he responds and that weeping can turn to joy. And the altar is also a place for showdowns. Ooh, this is the one I've been waiting to get to. Sometimes there needs to be a flesh versus spirit showdown. Jacob had one of those moments. You know the story? Jacob was quite the guy, wasn't he? I don't know if you're aware of this, but the name Jacob literally means deceiver. He was constantly one that was scheming and planning and doing things to get, get one up on his brother Esau. And he ended up, you know, stealing the birthright and all that and the whole story. And if you haven't read it, you need to go back through and read the story. It's quite a story. But finally, he's on his way back. And God has blessed him. 
And, but he's concerned because he knows his brother Esau is not happy with him. And so he's coming back, and so he, he puts all these gifts out in front, and he does all this stuff as he's making his way back, hoping that his brother will forgive him, and they can reconcile, and he can show how God's blessed him, and all this stuff. But, but you see that as he camps on the other side of the river, where this meeting is supposed to take place, he has this encounter with God. And in a sense, at the altar... There's a wrestling match that takes place. And Jacob is literally wrestling with God. Talk about a losing proposition. (laughs) But you know, we can laugh at him. There's a lot of times we're pretty good at wrestling with God too. That we can hold on to our stuff to the point that we're like, God, I don't want to do that. And the Holy Spirit's, yes, you need to. No, I don't want to. Yes, you need to. And there's this back and forth, and there's this wrestling with us, finally surrendering. But you know what the great thing is about the altar? The altar is that place where we can have the showdown and we can wrestle with God until we finally give up and he wins because he's going to anyway. There is something about when we finally surrender and say, okay, you win. And in that moment, I love it. God changes his name from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel. His descendants were the 12 tribes of Israel. Let that sink in for a moment. Because he surrendered and God blessed him. There's also another showdown. This is probably the most famous one. I love this story. Elijah on Mount Carmel. Talk about an altar showdown. Woo! I mean, but think about that. I begin to look at that through the prism of where we see our world and our society at today. I mean, because here was a whole nation that was just all out going after false gods. They were all out being pagan in every single way. The leadership of the nation, everything you could look at was chasing down the wrong direction. And here Elijah comes along and he's the one, one of the only ones that stands up and says, this should not be. And I love, even though he was outnumbered 451, 450 to 1, 450 prophets versus him, not counting the the prophecies of of Asherah and and others. I mean, the number gets way up there, but we're not going to add all that up. But just think, 450 to 1. And he finally comes along after there's been this drought and everything, and he says, okay, it's time for a showdown. Let's have the showdown at the altar. Ooh, I got to thinking about that. That that got really, really good to me. 
And I hope you see the picture where we're going because we live in a time where everything is chasing after every pagan thing we can think of. And we see all these times and we, it's easy for us to feel outnumbered. It's easy for us to feel like that there's no hope and there's no way and all these things. And really what we need to do is we need to back up and say, okay, let's have a showdown. Let's have a showdown at the altar. Because think about that story. I mean, he calls them together. It's like, okay. You guys think that this God that I serve is outdated? You think this God that I serve doesn't matter anymore? You think this God that I serve doesn't, isn't all powerful? You think that somehow all the stuff you're chasing after has more power and so forth? Well, let's just have a showdown. Let's get together. We'll build the altar. We'll put the sacrifice in place. We'll each take a turn. You guys go first. Call on your God. And the God that sends fire is God. Now, you know the story. What I love about this story is he lets them go first. They meet on top of the mountain. They get their sacrifice ready. They, scripture really says, literally says that they, that they called upon Baal from morning until noontime. I mean, I'm sure at first it was this exciting prayer. And then as you read it, it's like the thing begins to deteriorate. And they get more desperate. And I love how Elijah begins to taunt them. There literally is, if you, if you read some of the various translations, some of the wording can be translated to say, maybe your God has gone to relieve himself. I mean, he is taunting them. Where is, you know, where is this your God? Surely if Baal is God, he could send fire by now. I mean, they get more desperate. They begin to beat themselves and cut themselves and do all these things. And finally, the time comes. He says, okay, enough. My turn. And I love what he prays. 1 Kings 18, 36 through 38. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. Talk about a moment. Do you notice what he had to do? I purposely skipped ahead so I could make this point now. The altar was in disarray. There was no altar. Before this thing happened, he had to rebuild. He had to reestablish the altar. He had to pull together the 12 stones representing each tribe and stack them back up. He had to put the wood on the altar. He had to bring the sacrifice. And then 
even just to show off a little bit. He had them pour water over it three times and dig a trench around until the whole thing was soaked. He's like, look, I'm not even, you know, you guys couldn't even just sit the dry wood and get it set on fire. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise the bar and show you that God is really God. And he began to set it up. And this that simple, short prayer that he prayed, and all of a sudden, fire fell and the offering was consumed and all that began to take place and the whole nation saw who God really was. All because the altar was reestablished and God poured out the fire in a way that was very visible for the whole nation to see. You see, We can't, where we're at today, we can't win this thing. We can't turn the tide with a political argument. We can't set things back in order with the right militias that are armed. It's going to take standing up against the odds reestablishing the altar, sitting the stage, let there be a showdown at the altar. Because the whole world is, is, is sacrificing children at the altar of convenience. The whole world is chasing after every other thing. We see all of these things that are, that are taking place, and we see these circumstances, and, and they, they believe that there's power in, in some of the things that they believe in, and that, that somehow the right political situation will fix everything. They're chasing after all these things. We need to get back to a showdown. We say, you know what? We're going to quit fighting on your plane. We're going to start the fight at the altar. And we're going to call upon the name of the Lord and let the God that sends fire be God. We need a move of God. A move of God that's undeniable. A move of God where things happen that people have to stop and take notice. That's how things get turned back. Oh, it may be just a few souls at first. But you know what? How often do we see in Scripture the nation of Israel or some other nation was completely headed in the wrong? I mean, it looked like it was all but over. And God somehow showed up on the scene and poured out his spirit. And the fire fell and things changed and shifted. And I'm telling you, that is the only hope we have is to get back to this. Because Elijah defeated overwhelming odds. And what I've been trying to express this morning is the only way we can turn the tide against overwhelming odds is to put the altars back in business. Because lastly... The altar is where we meet with God. Thank God we don't have to bring bloody sacrifices with us because that's already been covered and paid for. That doesn't mean that we no longer need the altars because if you study it, there's one more kind of altar I want to talk about. The altar of incense. Revelations 8, 3 through 4. 
And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was giving much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and from the hand of the angel. Can you picture that? What was offered at that altar? The prayers of the saints. As an incense that came up before God. I want you to grab a hold of that picture. What if we begin to put the altars back to use? What if we begin to let call out our prayers and let it be that place where we moan and we wail and we call upon the name of the Lord that we throw out, throw inhibition aside and begin to pour out of our hearts to him? And all of a sudden, can you, can you just picture that rising up before God being offered at the altar of incense? It would move the heart of God some point, some way, we've got to shift and we've got to go back to that because we do, we get in such a hurry. We feel like we've got to come in and do this and, and go on. And if the service goes a little bit longer than we think we should, we, we begin to look at the watches and we begin to get upset. You know, there used to be a time. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go back and do that. We're not going to hold long, lengthy services just for holding long, lengthy services. But I'm just saying there, there are times that we need to get back to the place that we're willing to spend time in the altar, that we're willing to call upon the name of the Lord, that we're willing to lay things out. We're willing to say, oh, Lord, you've got to do something. And we renew covenants. And we become refilled with this spirit. And we begin to lay these things out and we hold on to the altars and say, Lord God, come, we need you. You see the status of my family. You see the status of my home. You see the status of my health. You see the circumstances in this nation. You see all the things that are going on. Lord, I'm going to grab hold of you until you begin to move and you begin to change things. But Lord, I'm not just asking you to do it. I'm going to lay things down. I'm going to let things in me that don't need to be. I'm going to let them die and let them stay right here we've got to get back to that place that day has to come we still need that place of sacrifice we still need to make new covenants we still need to weep until that weeping turns to joy we still need that place where we can wrestle with God until he wins We still need the place where we can have showdowns with the enemy and the place where we can meet with God. And we must do that. It needs to be in the church. It needs to be in our home. It needs to be on our commute to and from work. I have a dream. No, I'm not about to go into a long speech. But I dream seeing altars full. I dream of seeing people laving their stuff at the altar and calling out upon his name and beginning to see him move and touch lives and circumstances. You know what? I've become more and more convinced we don't need a new plan or strategy. We need to alter time and go back to the old strategy of getting in the altars. And then out of that will come the strategies to move forward.
I'm going to ask for some music. And this morning, I really want, there's, there's nothing else we can do with this but open up the altars for people to make a renewed sense that, you know what, I am going to change the way I've done things. I'm going to grab a hold of God until he moves and he does something and he begins to change the circumstances. I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for individuals that are sick with disease like Fred until there's an answer. I'm going to pray for my nation and my community until there's an answer. And I'm going to pray for the fire of God to fall in these altars. Luke 3.16 John answered them all, saying, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I am coming, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire needs to fall in the altars again. So I challenge you. I'm going to open the altars up up front here. If you're at home and you're watching, I challenge you to make an altar out of wherever you're at, whatever you have, whether it's a couch, a chair, or whatever. They're just going to play. If you feel like comfortable coming up front, come up front and find a place. If you want to turn and make an altar out of your seat, do that. But we're just going to take a a moment. I'm not going to do a formal dismissal today. The altars are going to be open. And when you feel like you're done, I would just ask that you slip out and any visiting that is done is done out in the foyer and this place is open for people to be in the altars and to pray and to seek God until you feel released. And we're going to continue. That the last few weeks, I challenge you, 15 minutes before service, worship team is stopping practice and we're opening the altars what would happen if we begin to show up early not after the first song but 15 minutes before the first song and we begin to pray over the altars saying Lord move today Pour out your fire today. Change hearts today. See, we all say, we all say, Lord, send revival. But we forget the start with me part. It's not that hard. It really isn't. If we would all be resolute in the idea of coming and beginning to pray beforehand and set the atmosphere beforehand and showed up with expectancy beforehand and got our junk taken care of beforehand. That would be the atmosphere that God would begin to move and begin to pour out His Spirit and begin to have His way.
He's just waiting on us. Enough talking. The altars are open for business. Come. Come.